I'm so excited to be up here today to, to share with you uh, part two of our parables series. And if you missed last week, we kicked off a brand new series on parables, which are just teachings of Jesus that, that shape our faith. And in week one, I preached about forgiveness and how uh, in the parable of the unforgiving servant, God's word showed us that you can't grip onto bitterness and grip onto the gospel at the same time. That just, it doesn't work like that. And then I taught us that Jesus is teaching us and not asking us to generate forgetfulness, but he's asking us to generate forgiveness for those people that have hurt us and wronged us. And today, I believe God has another powerful word for his church. Amen? Amen. Anybody agree? Well, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and World War II uh, kicked off, there was an 18-year-old man, young man uh, named Desmond Doss, who by duty uh, joined the draft, and he felt the call to serve and protect his country. However, he was, so, he was a Christian, and he didn't believe in killing, and he didn't believe in murder. So when he went into the military, he told them, hey, guys, I don't want a gun. And they looked at him like, what, you want to go to war, and you don't want to have a gun? Yeah, I don't... My God tells me not to kill, so I'm not, I'm not going to kill. And they kind of think he's a little weird, and that's a little strange, and they actually tried to put him in a whole different uh, part of the military to try and force him to use a gun. And he, uh, he appealed it, and he actually kind of went through this court system type process and went up the chain of command and begged and begged, and finally they just gave in to his request and said, fine, if you want to go to war and you don't want a gun and you, you're that dumb, fine, go do that. See you never. And um, he caught a lot of flack from that. And he went on to basic training. And while he was there, other soldiers just gave him a really, really, really hard time. They tortured him. They made fun of him. They beat him up. And one guy even said, Doss, when we go out there to war, my mission is that you don't come back here alive. That's how mad his fellow comrades were uh, when he said that he didn't want to uh, take a, a weapon into, into war. But Desmond never gave up caring for those soldiers that he was in the platoon with. And on May 5th, 1945, uh, him and his fellow troops, they were going into battle, and he forever made an impact on history. Um, him and his troop, they began to climb this massive ridge that you could only get up by rope. And when they got up there, they did not realize that there was a Japanese army on the other side waiting for them to cross that plateau. And as they crossed that plateau, they just began to bombard them with heavy artillery, with gunfire, with, with bombs. And uh, so things are just popping off as soon as they get over this ridge. And uh, American soldiers are getting shot and exploding and losing limbs. And many of them are, are in this battlefield now just wounded and stranded. And this this onslaught, uh, it was grueling. And so one of the commanding officers told all the troops, hey, fall back. We're going to regroup. Let's get back down off this ridge. Let's figure out what we're going to do. And in the middle of all this, um, one man refused to obey his orders and he ran back into the battlefield. And that was Desmond Doss. And in the middle of this gunfire and mortar shells going off, explosions, I just imagine his eardrums are, are busting. Doss, he treated the wounds of American soldiers uh, that had been left to just die. They had been left by their friends that they went into battle with. And even when his life was at risk, he was determined that he was going to save as many people as he could because his role was a medic and that's why he was there. And this went on for hours after hours. And as these explosions were 
were ringing in his ears as he tied countless tour, uh, tourniquets around wounds. He was covered in, head, in blood from head to toe uh, with blood that wasn't even his own. He would crawl through these bodies and he would find the ones that were alive. He would bandage their wounds. He would drag them back to the ridge and he would tie the rope around them and he would lower them down to the troops that were down there. And this went on for 12 hours. Doss going back and forth all day long, saving his fellow uh, soldiers. And he saved 75 lives that day. It's amazing. He didn't leave one person behind. And later, an interview asked him, like, man, Doss, how were you, how were you able to do that? Like, how were you able to save so many people? And you never, you never got hurt. You never did you know, any of this and you never killed anybody. He said, man, I believe in God. And I prayed that entire day I prayed and I prayed each time I went back for another soldier, Lord, please help me get one more. And he kept praying that over and over. And we know this is a true story. And they even made a movie about it uh, called Hacksaw Ridge. It's a really amazing movie. If you've never seen it, you should go check it out. But why do I share this? Because I believe Desmond did something heroic for a group of people who made fun of him and despised him and in reality wanted nothing to do with him. These were his fellow soldiers who had basic training, were beating him up in the locker room and making fun of him and telling him they just wish he would die. They wish that he wasn't even a part of the military. And so I share this because today's parable is one that's very similar to this. This scene that Jesus is setting up when he tells this parable is is showing the disdain that Jews and Samaritans had between each other because they hated one another. They were on the same team and didn't like one another. And this parable is the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. We've We've all heard this story, and I just, I believe that God is going to show us some things in his text today. Amen? And so if you've got your Bible or you've got your Bible app, you can open it up and go to chapter uh, 10 of Luke. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 is where the story starts. And it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So just to kind of, I'm just kind of going to teach through this verse by verse. We good with that church? Like we just got to go through this and see what God's word says. So you got this expert of the law here. And it's important to understand that an expert of the law was somebody that was extremely familiar, familiar and skilled in the law of Moses. Like he had committed his life to knowing the Torah and the laws for the Hebrew people. And so if you were to have a conversation with this guy back then, he'd be able to tell you everything and plus some about the Ten Commandments. He'd be able to tell you about the 613 laws uh, for relationship with God and relationship with people. So he would be able to, to tell you all this information and spit off all of this knowledge. And here he is in this story. He's trying to test Jesus, it says. Some different versions even say that he was trying to trap Jesus. And so he asked this question to start start off this passage. He says a question that people have been asking for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in different kind of forms. But he's asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Everybody wants to know, what do I need to do? What kind of good deeds do I need to do to earn my way into heaven? How much do I need to give? What do I need to do? Where do I need to do it? Where do I need to go? Where do I need to live? Like all of these things, I'm not saying all those questions are bad and all of these things can be awesome and can be used to do good things, but none of those good deeds will earn you a spot in heaven. It won't. That's why Jesus said the only way to come to the Father is through me 
his son, Jesus. So if you'll come to Jesus, that's how you earn a spot in heaven. And that's why Christianity is so different from every other religion that has ever been. And that's because we don't have to work our way towards God. He's already done that and worked his way towards us through his son, Jesus. That's why he sent Jesus. He knew that we couldn't ever get past that veil. And so if we come to Jesus, we can get to the Father. And it's only that if we believe in that, if we believe that Jesus Christ came to us, then we get to him. Does that make sense? Like we believe, we receive him, and then we follow him. We don't just follow Jesus. We become disciples of Jesus. We devote our life to Jesus. We fall in love with Jesus and we allow the word of God to shape our lives and change us from the inside out. And so this guy, he asked Jesus this question and he does something I love, something I love to do. And I, I was reading this and I started laughing. I was like, oh man, I do this. And I didn't even realize that Jesus has been doing this for a long time. And maybe you do it too. I'll, let me ask you this. Have y'all ever uh, had somebody ask you like a preloaded question? You know what I mean? Like they ask you a question and they've already got an answer in their head and they're just trying to figure you out and, and fill you out and see what, how you're going to answer. And if you believe like they believe and if you're going to do that and if you don't, it's probably not going to be good. They're going to tell you how you're wrong, even though you might not be wrong. Y'all ever had that or is that just me? Am I just am I the only one that's dealt with people like that? I had that just happened a couple of weeks ago. A guy asked me a question and I, I kind of could sense where this was going. And I just said, I don't know, man, you tell me. And uh, he began to tell me what he believed. And I was like, oh, good. We believe the same thing. This is going to be good. So that was all, that was all good, but that just happened. And, uh, and this is Jesus' response to the man. He asks this question or he answers this question with a question. He said, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He's like, man, you've been an expert in the law. You've been reading this book for so long. Like you read it every day. You've got these things memorized. You've read it. Tell me what's written in it. How do, how do you read it? How do you interpret it? And this man answered in verse 27, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And he begins to quote scripture like you would expect this expert in the law to do. He's uh, quoting Deuteronomy 6 and and Leviticus chapter 19. And Jesus uh, replies to him after he says this. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. It's that simple. And the man answered. He answered right. He tested Jesus. Some say he trapped Jesus. He was trying to trap him. But you can't trap what God has ordained as truth. And that's what this was. His, his, his quoting of this scripture was principles that had already been known. We teach our kids over there in the kids' ministry with Pastor Maggie. They have four simple sayings. Love God, love people, do your best, and have fun. Ain't that good? Love people, love God, do your best, and have fun. If you, will, if you can get those things down, if you can just learn that at such a, a young age, man, you are fulfilling what God has for you. So if you love God, then love his people. You can't claim to love God and then curse people that are made in his image. It just does not work like that. And Jesus is saying, look, you know, Mr. Expert of the law, that this is the way, just, just do it and you'll live and you'll earn your spot as you're trying to figure out. And so this guy he wanted to push Jesus just a little bit further. 
And he wanted to get even more clarity from Jesus. And so he says, okay, then if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as I love myself, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? It says that he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's almost as if he's trying to get this set of standards, these prerequisites that, that uh, qualify somebody as a neighbor uh, to, to him. And I think a lot of times we do this in the world today. We do it all the time. I've been guilty of it. It's so easy for people to be nice to someone who has the same income status as them. They live in the same subdivision as them. They share the same favorite sports team. They have the same ethnicity as them. They have the same political party views as them. Those are the neighbors that are easy to love, right? But what about the other people? What about the neighbor with different views, the neighbor with a different skin color, that person that has a different tax bracket that maybe is lower than yours? We do this even guilty in the church of this, that, man, we've got different uh, denominations and we've got different associations. And God is like, like, man, y'all could be so much better if y'all would just work together. Like, it's great that you can reach those people and relevant church can reach those kinds of people and the Methodist church can reach those kinds of people. But how much more powerful would the gospel be if churches united and got out there and loved their neighbors as they love themselves and they love their preferences and their views and their ideologies and their theologies? How much better would the world be if the church would just get together and defy these social norms that we have created. Jesus has been defying social norms and gender norms for a long time. Think about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus is going about his business. The disciples had um, went into town to get some food one day and some drinks, and Jesus unknowingly just sits at this well that happens to be Jacob's well, and he sits down to, to take a rest and um, a woman walks up to the well to draw out some water from the well. And when, he, or when she comes up, he asks her, like, hey, would you mind, you know, drawing me out some water? I'm, I'm pretty thirsty. And she's like, Who, you talking to me? You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan. We don't, we don't like each other. We don't talk. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They had different views. The Samaritans, they were a mixed race because they had intermarried with, with the, uh, the Assyrians. And so no respectable Jewish man was going to associate with a Samaritan, let alone a Samaritan woman. Men and women didn't talk back then unless you were married or they were your cousin or something like that. Other than that, y'all didn't associate. And so this is one of the few ways that Jesus had crossed this social norm. But even on the flip side of this, she was an outcast in her own town, among her own people. She had been married five times, five times. And the woman that she was with right then was not even her husband. But what did Jesus do? He spoke to her in love. He offered her salvation. He said, hey, you can keep drawing water out of that well, but tomorrow you're going to be thirsty. Man, if you knew the Messiah, if you knew the Son of God, you would, and you came to that well, you would never be thirsty again. And he starts telling her all about her, her own story, and her eyes are open, and she's like, wow, this, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. And she runs back to town, and she's telling everybody about this Jesus. 
But the way he spoke to her in love and compassion to somebody that his people did not like, that's loving your neighbor. That's loving your neighbor. And the principle is this. We love each other so the world will see God's love through us. We defy those social norms of, hey, man, those people don't look like me. They don't act like me. They don't talk like me. Their skin color's different than me. We defy that because the world needs to see that we as Christians have a love inside us that comes straight from the Father. And when we go and we love on those people that don't look like us and smell like us and talk like us and all of those things, when we do that, they are seeing God's love for them through us. And so church, we should be people that love other people so the world will see God. God's love through us. Amen. And after answering the guy's question with a question, he goes on and he starts his parable. And in verse 30, he said, in reply, a man was going down from Jerusalem. This was a Jewish man. A Jewish man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he was attacked uh, by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. They went away and left him half dead. Now, again, it's important to understand the context of this road that Jesus is talking about. This stretch of road from Jerusalem to, Je- to, to uh, Jericho was one that was very, very dangerous during that time. Like many people, they would only travel that road during the daytime and they would probably try to do it as quick as they could because they knew people would lay in ambush and try to beat them up and rob them and take all their belongings, just like what happened uh, to this guy. It's like if you asked your friend back then, hey man, how are you going to Jericho or how are you getting to Jerusalem, you'd be like, man, I think I'm going to saddle up my donkey and go to I-24 and get take that way and I'll get off on the bypass. You didn't get to do that back then. You would have said, man, I'm going the way of the blood. That's what it was known as. This road was known as the way of blood, which to me sounds like a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie or the next Rambo movie. But the point is, this road was dangerous, and the guy that Jesus is talking to, he would, have, he would have understood that, man, he's talking about the way of blood, and he would understand that this is, uh, this is, this is dangerous for this guy. So this story starts off with this Jewish man uh, traveling on this road, and unfortunately, he gets beat up, he gets robbed. We saw that bandits left him just to die. And then Jesus goes on to say, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He sees this man broken and this religious man just says, I got got other things I got to do. I just got to keep going. And then it says, and so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. So the the Levite was also another kind of religious, religious man. And so these men of God, they were passing by this broken and defeated man. We got any, we got any dream team members in here? Raise your hand if you're a dream team member, you serve on dream team member. Can I talk to y'all for just a second? Don't get so caught up in your tasks on Sunday morning that we forget to stop and minister to the people that we are praying for all week long here. That's a bad spot for us to be. God has given us today as an opportunity for the hurting and the broken to come in and experience being ministered to and experience God. So we as, as, as servants, as people that are serving on dream teams, we can't get so caught up in those things that we miss those people that we have been praying for. And you think that Jesus would tell this story 
And the religious guys would be the ones to do the right thing. You think that they would be the one to stop and say, man, you know, I'm a man of God and, uh, you know, I'm so sorry that you're hurting. Let me, let me pray for you. Let me, let me give you some of my belongings. Let me bandage up your wounds. But it doesn't happen that way. You see, these guys, they were priests and they were religious men, which meant that they were held to certain practices and rituals that kept them pure. They had to do certain things that if they weren't pure, they weren't able to get into uh, the temple to worship. And so if this guy was to stop and get blood on his, on his outfit, he might not be able to go into the temple and worship. And so he's like, man, I ain't risking that. And he looks at this guy that's been beaten up and broken. He's like, man, maybe he's a criminal. I, I definitely can't associate with that. That would, that would make me unpure. And I don't want anything that makes me unpure. So these uh, two religious men, they walk by a man who has had something evil happen to him. And they completely ignore his need for help. And this quote that I'm going to share with you the internet attributes it to Edward Burke, but the first time I heard it was by Eric Camden on Seventh Heaven, and uh, so I, I personally attribute it to Eric Camden, um, but I'll give it to Edmund. It says, the only way for evil to triumph is for good men to stand by and do nothing. That's the only way for evil to triumph in this world, is for people of God to stand by and do nothing. And sadly, in this parable, this is, this is what's happening. This man was beaten and robbed and the religious people, they did nothing to help him. They stood by and even in the eyes of some, they probably became an accomplice to this crime. Church, let's not be people who stand to the side and do nothing and let evil just keep on happening. Let's be someone that speaks up, that stands up, that does the right thing. The culture teaches the world today, hey, you worry about you. You do what you need to do. Their loss is your gain. Hey, man, and that's an opportunity. Maybe that's a blessing from God that they had something bad happen to you because now that's, that's an opportunity for you. It's every man for himself. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. People say that stuff all the time and none of that is biblical. It's not. We've been called to be different. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's different than what the culture teaches us. Even today, but church, we're different from the culture for the culture. We're different from the world for the world. We do not live the same way that the world lives. So that way we can uh, be somebody that leads people to Jesus. These religious men, this priest and this Levite, they had an opportunity to be different from the other men like them. They had an opportunity to be different from the culture of their time, yet they chose to bow down to their rituals and their ideas. And that's a bad, bad place to me. They did not love their neighbors as themselves. And on the flip side of that, a little side note is, I just wonder, do we have trouble loving our neighbors as much as we love ourselves? Because in actuality, you don't really love yourself all that much. And you've got a bad outlook on, on your life and you're a bad look out on you. You look in the mirror and you just don't see somebody that's loved and, and full, of, full of grace. You don't, you don't see that. You don't see somebody made in the image of God. And can I be honest with y'all for a second? Can I be transparent? Y'all hear me say all the time, if you talk to me and you ask me how I'm doing, I will, I will always say I'm unbelievable. And if you ask me why, I'll say because it's a great day to be alive and I'm highly motivated to make tomorrow even better. And I 1,000% I believe that in my heart. I really, really do. 
And some mornings I wake up and I'm super excited about the day. I'm super excited about what God's going to uh, do, do in me and, and through me. And sometimes I wake up excited about the day, but there's some mornings when I wake up and it's just a little bit harder to get out of bed. And I feel, sometimes I wake up and I feel sad. Anybody else deal with that? Some days it's like that. But something that I've been doing as of recent, um, I set a reminder on my phone and it's, it sets to go off before I ever wake up. And so as soon as I turn off my alarm and look at my phone, the very first thing I see is this reminder and it says, it's going to be a great day because I have a father who loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. And so even if I wake up and, and I have one of those mornings where it's a tough morning and I'm just feeling down and life's feeling hard and things are feeling difficult and I'm just having a hard time that morning, I read that and it changes everything. It changes my outlook because it reminds me of a truth that I have a father in heaven who loves me and so do you. And you have a father in heaven who has a wonderful plan for your life. So yes, the enemy may make you feel sad. He might make you feel anxious and depressed and all those things. But listen, we can take captive those thoughts like the word of God says and we make them obedient to the truth. And the truth is you do have a father who loves you. You do have a father who has a wonderful plan for your life. And so we have to begin to take captive those thoughts and view ourselves the way that God views us. And it says in verse 33, right after these two religious men have passed by this hurt man, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where this Jewish man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Remember what I said, Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews thought that you were supposed to worship one way. Samaritans thought you were supposed to worship another way. Back to that woman at the well. She spoke to Jesus and she said, what are you trying to say? That you're greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and provided for us? Are you better than him? Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. And you Jews, you say that we're supposed to worship over there in Jerusalem. And so it's interesting that Jesus is using a Samaritan in this story. And it says in verse 34 that he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. So you have this enemy seeing his enemy. And there's three things that I noticed as I read these two verses. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to write these down. The Samaritan saw his neighbor, had pity for his neighbor and loved his neighbor. Those are the three things that just happened in those two verses. He saw his neighbor. He had pity for his neighbor. He loved his neighbor. So first he sees his neighbor, someone he hates, someone who he knows hates him. And then he makes the conscious decision to say, wait, if I was robbed, if I was beaten, if I was broken, I would want somebody's help. And this causes him to have pity for his neighbor, somebody he does not like. And because he had pity for him, this leads him to take action because we all know that love is an action and he shows love to his neighbor. And you got to think just because he's doing something nice and something good, it doesn't mean that the road isn't dangerous anymore. And that all the other robbers are like, oh, wow, would you look at that? We just beat up that guy and this nice gentleman is taking care of him. Let's just leave him alone. He's doing a good thing. This will probably go down in history as a, as a parable and as a story or something like that. No, they were probably wanting to beat him up too and take his money. 
So he's in a dangerous situation and he's probably staying there longer than he probably wants to. But this is loving God and loving his people. This is loving God with all of your mind, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. This is what loving your neighbor as yourself looks like. So when is the last time that you inconvenienced yourself to serve somebody else? And I'm not just talking about in the church. Yes, you should join a dream team. You should join a team and serve. But I'm talking about out there when you're in the world and you're going about your business and you're going here and you're going there and you've got all of these plans. When is the last time that you inconvenience yourself to just serve somebody else and love somebody else and share Jesus with somebody else? And in Luke 10, 35, it says, the next day he took out two denarii And gave them to the innkeeper and told the innkeeper, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. So this Samaritan, he's already went out of his way for this guy. He had already stopped what he was doing. He probably had plans to go somewhere. He might have been taking his son camping that night. He might have been going out to hang out with his friends. But somewhere in this story, he inconvenienced himself. He loaded up this broken man on his own donkey. He uh, took him to an inn. He paid for him to stay there a few days. And he even was willing to pay for any extra expenses that he might incur that uh, while he was at his stays. And, and what I'm getting to and what I'm seeing in this is that sometimes being a Christian will cost you. And I'm not talking about monetarily. It, it might. God may have put generosity in your heart and man, you, need, you do need to do that. But I'm not always saying it's going to cost you with, with financially, with money, but sometimes it might cost you to give up some things that you think that you love. It might cost you to miss out on that college football game on Saturday. It might cost you giving up that weekend at the campground. It might cost you some sleep so you can get up earlier before you go to work, before your your kids wake up, before you go to school students. It might cost you to wake up a little bit earlier and read your Bible so you can get closer to him and know what he said about you, know what he believes about you. And here's what I know, church, being a Christian, it'll cost you to miss out on a lot, but it will not cost you to miss out on anything anything you will regret. And as we read this parable and any other parable, there's like 30 something of them. As we read those, we have to determine who we are. Why is Jesus saying these parables? Why is he telling us these? Because you can and you should be a good Samaritan. I absolutely believe that. It has become a proverbial phrase that we use. I, I told the, the last experience, I, I was thinking of Mr. Tim when my AC went out this summer, and he came over there that afternoon and was helping me work on it. And unfortunately, I needed a whole new AC unit, uh, so that was sad. But man, that was, he, was being a, he was being a good Samaritan. He was just trying to offer his talents and gifts and wisdom that God had given him about uh, AC units to try and help me out. That was that was the good Samaritan thing to do. It's good for you to go out there and feed that homeless person that's standing on the corner. That's a good Samaritan. It's it's good to do all of these things. But you want to know another parallel that I see in this story? What if the church is the end in this story? What if the church is the end in this story? Because we say it all the time here. This church is a place where the broken and the hurting, they come to find healing. They come to find freedom, know God, 
Find freedom, discover purpose, make a difference. We say that, and that's what the Good Samaritan did for his neighbor. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. He told the innkeeper, look, I got to go away for a little bit, but so watch over him. I'll come back, and if there's anything else that he's incurred, I will, I will reimburse you for that. Man, this sounds like the church to me. This reminds me of another parable, the parable of the talents, where the master had entrusted his servants with, uh, with his money and he went away for a little bit and said, hey guys, you watch over my belongings. And then when he came back, some had stewarded well. One guy had not stewarded it well. And to those that he did, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. And he blessed them. This sounds like Jesus saying, hey guys, I have to go away for a little bit, but I'm gonna be back. I'm coming back and he will. I see the church in this parable. God will bring the hurting and the broken through those double doors. And we have been called to watch over them and to help them. And one day Jesus Christ will return and he will ask you and he will ask me, what did we do for those he brought to us? Because this building is amazing. We have awesome lights. We have awesome sound. Brian is great at playing keys. Like it's, it's great. We got a lot of good things happening in this building. And God will bring those people here to this building. But this building is just a tool. It's not a toy. It's not something we don't do all this every weekend just for you to have a concert or for you to have a, a, somebody come and give you a good word that's a good speaker. We don't, we don't do any of that. We do it for the hurting and the broken because we understand that this might be the one day that we have that could change their entire eternity. Do you realize that? Do you realize that? And we don't want to hog it all to ourselves. We want you to be a part of it. We want you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We want you to discover your purpose. We want you to have a difference made in your life and through your life for other people by God working in you. I see us, the church, in this parable. It's not built on the back of one person. We all have a responsibility. Every single person, if you hear my voice in here, from the smallest child to the oldest adult, you have a responsibility to take care of the people that come through those doors. And so that's why we ask you to join a team. That's why we'd ask you to lead a small group. That's why we ask you to be uh, involved, to be the church, because we're a church that's not built on the charisma of a few, but on the commitment of many. And that takes commitment from you and others that are coming in here and experiencing him. That should be our hearts to be committed, to love our neighbor. And Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. He wasn't saying that we just need to do nice things for strangers. He's saying that your neighbor, those out there, those ones down the street, those ones on south side of Paducah, those are the ones that need Jesus. Those are the ones that need you. He's saying those are your neighbors. Go out there, reach them. They need to be brought to Jesus. That person that has a different political view from, the, from you and you think that, man, he's just, you know, he's destined for hell. Like that person needs Jesus. Like you need to get out there and invite somebody and show them the life-changing power and the love that God has shown you and given you. And uh, ask, ask them, hey, just come experience him. 
Just come and see. That's all Jesus ever said. Come and see. God's doing some mighty things. Come and see. So have you joined a team? Have you invited someone to church? Have you invited God into your life? Have you in your brokenness received him? Have you given your whole self to him, everything? Have you given your spouse, your relationships, your boss, your jobs? Have you given those things to him? Have you surrendered your life to him? Because that's before anything else, before anything gets fixed, that's where you start. And that can start this morning. The love of God is here. And he wants you to see that he made you in his image and that he cares about you and your hurt and your brokenness and even the shame and the fear that you feel. He still wants you to come and let him embrace you.